You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Thank you very much for coming. This is a great room. Nice to see a lot of people here and a lot of familiar faces and some new faces. Uh, my name is Philip Lyon. I'm the Managing Director of the Ellison Center for Russian and East European and Central Asian Studies here at UW. Um, and it is my pleasure today to welcome, along uh, with all of you, um, historian Douglas Smith, who will present his book on um, Rasputin, Fate, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs. Um, we, he is going to be introduced by my colleague Elena Campbell, but first I want to thank Elena Campbell for making this visit possible. Uh, we really owe her a debt for bringing um, Dr. Smith here to campus. And with that, I will hand over to Elena. Good afternoon. And it's a pleasure for me to introduce historian Douglas Smith, um, who wrote several excellent uh, books on Russian history. His first book, published in 1999, explore, explored the history of Russian Freemasonry in, um, 18, in the 18th century. In 2004, um, Douglas translated, edited, and published a rich and um, fantastic collection of letters exchanged between Catherine the Great and her famous favorite lover and political partner, um, <laughs> Grigory Potemkin. Uh, four years later, a new book came out which further explored the world of aristocracy and another love story, this time between Count Sheremetyev and uh, his um, serf singer, uh, Praskovya Kavalyova. In 2012, uh, Douglas Smith published book, Former People, uh, which again explored the world of aristocracy, but this time uh, the influence of uh, looking at influence of Bolshevik revolution on the changing lives and lives of, um, of the upper class. And today, uh, Douglas will be presenting his recent book on Rasputin, the spiritual guide to Nicholas II's family. So please welcome Douglas Smith, and thank you. Uh, thank you. It's nice to be here. Um, I'd like to thank uh, RECAS and the Department of History for helping to organize this, and uh, Val and Phil and Yelena for that wonderful introduction. And also, I, I want to thank uh, Ben Green, a graduate student who uh, kind of got the ball rolling and, and, and asked if uh, there might be a way for me to come over uh, and speak here at the university. Um, so it's wonderful to be here. Um, I've got about four hours to get through my talk, <laughs> and then there's a quiz to get out the door. Um, no, I'm going to talk for about 40 minutes or so, uh, and then happy to take any questions that, uh, that you might have uh, at the end, and we'll wrap up uh, around 4.30 or so. It was a little over a century ago, in December 1916, that arguably the most notorious murder of the 20th century took place. 
Many of you obviously know the, the general outline of the story about the man who was lured to the palace of Prince Yusupov late one night. He was fed poisoned cakes. He was fed poisoned wine. He was beaten. He was clubbed. He was shot. And then he was dumped in an icy branch of the Neva River with his heart still beating and only dying eventually of drowning. Here is a picture of, of our hero, uh, Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin, as he's called in Russian, two or three days after the murder, after his body has just been plucked from this icy hole here on the branch of the Neva. There is the bridge in the background from which his body had been tossed. The killers, Prince Felix Yusupov, uh, Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, cousin of the Tsar Nicholas II, and Vladimir Purishkevich, right-wing fanatical member of the, of the Duma, all were um, moved by a variety of motives in their desire to kill Rasputin. But at heart, they all saw themselves as great Russian patriots. Russia at this time obviously was drifting into chaos. After two years of terrible losses in World War I and defeats, there was a sense of dark apocalypse hanging over Russia at the time. Many believed that the reason for Russia's defeats in the war was not as a result of their own um, failures and misdeeds and lack of competence, but could only be explained by traitors and spies in their midst. And it was widely believed that among the leaders of this network of spies selling out Russia was none other than Grigory Rasputin and the Empress Alexandra. The conspirators believed that by killing Rasputin, they would do away with the head spy and would also probably destroy the emotional equilibrium of the Empress and she would remove herself to a monastery convent and thus Russia would be saved. But as we know, of course, the opposite happened. The murder of Rasputin, in fact, sped up the forces of disruption and anarchy. The murder did not save the monarchy. It, in fact, helped to spell its doom. And within three months of the murder of Rasputin, the Romanov dynasty, the 300-year-old House of Romanov, fell. The symbolist poet Alexander Bloch put it very accurately when he wrote, the bullet that killed Rasputin struck the very heart of the reigning dynasty. Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin is obviously one of the most famous, if not notorious, figures in Russian history. Popular culture is literally littered with Rasputins. Many of you know Boney M's 1970. Again, this will not be your typical academic talk, sorry. Um, I had to bring some disco in. Um, many of you know the 1970s disco hit uh, by Boney M, uh, which has the famous lines, Ra Ra Rasputin, lover of the Russian queen. Ra Ra Rasputin, Russia's greatest love machine. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, you can easily find it on YouTube. I recommend it. Once you've heard it, you'll not forget it. Um, but of course, he's been featured in other songs. Um, less well-known than the Boney M was a 1933 song from a group called The Three Keys that I managed to track down. 
uh, and they recorded a hit called Rasputin, the highfalutin loving man. <laughs> it, it tells the, the story of a crazy lover by the name of Rasputin Jones. Um, and it has this wonderful line that goes, can't you tell he's from the South? See that gold mine in his mouth? <laughs> that one you can't find easily, but I did find a copy. There are, of course, Rasputin bars, there are Rasputin restaurants, cafes. Those of you who maybe went to Cal Berkeley know the Rasputin music store. Um, there's obviously a Rasputin vodka, although he did not like vodka. Uh, and there's a Rasputin imperial stout that comes out of California. Uh, there are Rasputin in comic books, in Japanese anime and manga. Uh, if you're more into high culture, there is even a Rasputin opera. And obviously there are dozens of Rasputin movies. One of the most recent starred, uh, Putin's good friend, Gerard Depardieu, uh, from a few years ago. This is a horrible job of casting. Rasputin was thin, taut, energetic, electric in his movements, not slow, lumbering, <laughs> overfed on whatever it is that Gerard likes to eat these days. Not a good job of, of casting. And then some of you maybe remember the uh, Warner Brothers animated Anastasia from 1997, which featured this um, unforgettable depiction of, of Rasputin. The story of Rasputin reads like a dark fairy tale. An obscure, uneducated peasant from the wilds of Siberia receives a calling from God and sets out in search of the true faith, a journey that leads him across the vast expanses of Russia for many years before finally bringing him to the palace of the Tsar. The royal family takes him in and is bewitched by his piety, his unerring insights into the human soul, and his simple peasant ways. Miraculously, he saves the life of the heir to the throne, but the presence of this outsider and the influence that he wields with the Tsar and the Tsaritsa angers the great men of the realm, and they lure him into a trap and kill him. Many believe that the holy peasant had foreseen his death and prophesied that should anything happen to him, the Tsar would lose his throne. And so he does, and the kingdom he once ruled is plunged into unspeakable bloodletting and misery for years. Now, historians and biographers have long been fascinated by the figure of Rasputin, the so-called mad monk uh, or the holy devil. Um, he's clearly not somebody who has been overlooked or forgotten in the history books. Indeed, the catalog uh, at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. lists something like 153 titles on Rasputin. So the question I had to ask myself before I decided to go down this road was, why do we need 154 books on Rasputin? You would think 153 would be enough. Um, I sort of came to the subject by, by coincidence. Um, I had never planned to write a book on Rasputin. Uh, I have an academic training and background. I have a, a PhD in Russian history from UCLA. Um, and I think if I had told my professors uh, and my advisor that I wanted to write on Rasputin, they probably would have kicked me out of graduate school. Um, he's never really been taken seriously by 
scholars, by professional historians. There's a, a whiff of the carnival about him. He seems a bit too popular, uh, a bit too Disney-fied um, to warrant serious um, attention. Um, but it was, it was working on a previous book I did uh, that Elena mentioned called Former People, which is the story of what happened to the Russian nobility after the revolutions of 1917, that I had to do a lot of research on the final years of the Romanov dynasty. And sort of everywhere I looked, there was this figure of Rasputin sort of luring over uh, all of life, all of the empire in the early years of the 20th century. And it sort of piqued my curiosity and I decided that, well, maybe I should just learn a bit more about Rasputin as part of the research for I was doing on former people. So I began reading some of the best known uh, biographies of Rasputin um, and I quickly came away feeling very unsatisfied with what it was that I was reading. They didn't seem to me to be terribly believable. Um, he was presented typically in a very two-dimensional, um, caricatured sort of way. There was still much more the myth of Rasputin, as far as I could make out, as opposed to the man, as opposed to the true story of his life. He was very much depicted as, as this sort of holy devil type of figure um, who belonged more in the realm of fiction, I felt, than in the realm of, of solid history and, and biography. Typically, he was depicted as a satanic sort of force. And then I noticed that in recent years, a certain small group of Russians had started to go back to Rasputin's story as well, but from a completely different point of view. For Russian nationalist historians, Rasputin was not the devil, but in fact, Rasputin was the saint. Uh, and they completely inverted, if you will, the pluses and the minuses. And every negative story that had ever been told about Rasputin, they insisted was a lie. Um, generally lies created to favor, I don't know, Western liberals or what have you, um, and tried to depict him as a, a truly holy, truly saint, uh, saintly figure. So I was left with these two very different Rasputins after going through about a dozen or so biographies, and I felt, okay, I think there's a way down the middle, and it's only got to be in the middle that I think some sort of truth could be found. I decided, though, that if I was going to do this book and to do it well and, and to warrant spending the years that it would take, that it was not enough to read what would, uh, was already published and sort of repackage, recycle the existing material, the, uh, the stories that you find in all the other books, that if I was um, going to get closer to the truth of his story, I would definitely have to try to go back to the archives, to go back to the original documents and avoid everything really that was written about him after his death as a way of, of pulling back these layers of, of myth and legend. Now, I had no idea when I started how much work this was going to be. It took me almost six years of full-time research and writing. Uh, I ended up uh, w getting material from archives in seven different countries. Uh, obviously, Moscow and Petersburg. I went to, to Siberia, to uh, Tobolsk and Tumien that had materials on him. I traversed across Western Europe to Berlin, Vienna, and Paris. Um, a lot of material I found in England, and then also in the United States at the Hoover Institution Archive at Stanford, and also at the Bakhmetyev Archive at Columbia University. 
Um, and I just kept digging and digging, and as I was digging, um, I came to the realization that there was all of this great, solid, truly factual kind of stuff that could pull Rasputin out of this realm of pure myth and legend and sort of ground him back into the world uh, that he lived in and that he moved in in the late 19th and, and early 20th century. And I was also able to explode some of the myths that have, that have so long lingered over Rasputin. And I'll give you just a couple examples. One of them goes back to the, the root causes of his murder in 1916 was this idea that Rasputin was a spy and was working on behalf of the Germans in World War I. Now this is repeated often in biographies. And as late as, as 2004, there was a, a biography that appeared by a historian in, in Moscow claiming that uh, there's no doubt that Rasputin was working on behalf of the Germans and that he was the one who sold out the emperor to the Kaiser. Um, none of this ever seemed terribly believable to me, but I began to think, well, how do we answer this question one way or another finally? And I began to realize that no one had taken the time to look in Germany, because if he indeed had been a spy, there must be some sort of traces in the German archives, but no one who had worked on Rasputin had taken the time to go. So I ended up going and spent a week uh, at the um, political archive of the Ministry for Foreign Affairs in Berlin. Um, and it was amazing. Sure enough, Rasputin was everywhere in the archive that I was looking. There were documents galore on Rasputin from the war years. And it was fascinating to go through these because what I quickly realized was that the German high command was obsessed with Rasputin in 1915 and 1916. Um, and they were interviewing anyone with connections to the Russian court as they would pass through neutral countries like Sweden or Switzerland. And we're asking all sorts of questions, trying to get intelligence on Rasputin and his position. Um, but what was clear from the archival material was that they were getting all sorts of different answers. Some people were saying Rasputin was for the war. Some were saying that Rasputin was against the war and wanted to convince Nicholas to make a separate peace with the Kaiser. Uh, some were saying that he was open to working with the Germans. Some were saying he was not open to working with the Germans. Some were saying that you could easily bribe him with money or liquor or women. And other sources were saying there's no way to get to Rasputin. He's such a man of irresolute character that there's simply no way to, to bribe him and win him over to the German side. So what was clear to me was that the idea that he was a spy is simply, again, one of these legends for which there is simply no basis in fact. Um, and I could tell you a side story later. Uh, this Russian historian who claims he is a spy contacted me after I did an interview on Russian radio and is still convinced that I'm crazy and he was a spy. But that's a story for another day. You can't please everybody. Now, that's how things work when they're going well. You, you do your research from home, you find that there's an archive somewhere and they have material. Uh, you go there, you sit down, and they bring you things in a nice orderly Germanic way and you get the answers you're looking for. It doesn't always go that way. Um, there were some police documents published uh, not long after the revolution of 1917 about how Rasputin had been under surveillance by the Tsar's police for many years up until his murder. 
But there were just sort of a handful of documents. But it became very clear that there were these documents of police surveillance on Rasputin. Throughout most of the Soviet period, these documents on Rasputin were basically not handed out. He was not considered a subject worthy of inquiry during the Soviet period. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, a few researchers were granted access to them. One a man by the name of Edvard Radzinski, who's quite a character maybe you've heard of, playwright slash historian, loves a great story, and has a propensity to make up things that aren't there because he thinks the story comes first. Um, he had access to them. And then another gentleman by the name of Oleg Platonov, um, who was one of these Russian nationalists currently writing, who's convinced that uh, Rasputin was a saint uh, murdered by Jews and Freemasons as part of a grand plot against Holy Russia. So I knew I couldn't rely too heavily on these people and what they had found. So I knew that I had to go and see these police files for myself. And they're kept in Moscow in probably what may be the biggest archive in Russia, the uh, State Archive of the Russian Federation. So I went there, and sure enough, I found from the catalog that there were these police files, and I put in a request in the reading room to see them. And they said, come back the next day, which is often how things go there. Uh, so I came back the next day, eager to see these police files. And I went up to the window there to ask for them. And uh, I was given a little slip of paper that said, the files are with the director. And I said, excuse me? And they said, the files are with the director. I said, yes, I heard you. Could you elaborate on that? They said, no, the files are with the director, meaning the director of the archive. So I asked again, and I asked kind of around that question and other sorts of ways. And all I kept getting were the files with, were with the director. And I couldn't see them. So I'm like, OK, fine. So I lurked on some other things, came back several months later, thinking, well, maybe by now the director must be done with these files. <laughs> again, same thing. The files are with the director. The file, I, and nothing more was given out. So I went back a third time, worked on some other things in some other archives, went back to, to this, this particular archive, got that same answer for a third time. And at this point, I'm like, OK, this is ridiculous. I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm asking friends of mine. No one seems to know what I, what I can do. And as I was heading back from Moscow to Seattle, I stopped in England to give a, a talk um, at a literary festival, gave my talk. Uh, and then after, a, a, a woman came up to me and said, I you know, enjoyed hearing you speak, blah, blah, blah. Um, what are you working on now? And I said, well, I'm, I'm trying to write a biography of Rasputin, but I'm totally stymied. I can't do it without these police files. And they're apparently with the director of this archive where they're located and blah, blah, blah. And we, just, we were chatting. And I could tell immediately she was an immigrant. She had a, a bit of an accent. And she said, well, what archive are they in? I said, they're in the State Archive of the Russian Federation. She goes, oh, well, the director's my godfather. Oh. <laughs> I fell to my knees. I hugged her legs. Um, uh, Sergei Mironenka, former now, now former director of the archive, was her, was her godfather, grew up basically like an uncle figure to her. Uh, this woman, Masha Milieva, who teaches in, in London, I, and she goes, well, I'll just shoot him an email, let him know you're coming. And I was like literally sweating, crying, shaking all at once. And sure enough, uh, a year later, I got to go back um, uh, to Moscow and had arranged with uh, Sergei Mironenka, the head of the archive, to come see him. And I'm shown into his office. And there on his desk, from like here up to here, are the police files, which have been sitting in his office for at least two or three years. Apparently, he had, at some point in his life, thought he might want to work on them. 
had requested them, brought to him in his office, and just kind of forgotten about it, and none of the underlings beneath him even dared to ask about them. <laughs> so we start chatting, and I'm like, keep looking at the documents, and finally he says, okay, I'm gonna let you look at these documents, but I'm only giving you two days, and you can't take any pictures, and you can't take any Xeroxing. So I said, fine. So I grabbed the stuff, ran to the reading room, sat down, uh, did not move and typed uh, as fast as I could, turning pages as fast as I could uh, for two days. And um, you know, it goes to show you've, you can never give up. You've gotta be determined because it was only thanks to these um, documents, these police files, and you could write a book just on the police files, that I was able to again explode one of these famous myths that is always repeated in in the life story of, of, of Rasputin. Some of you maybe know this story, um, but it was in March of 1915, uh, Rasputin took the overnight train from Petrograd, as Petersburg was called then, to Moscow, and spent a week in Moscow. And the story goes that while he was there one night, he and some friends went to a restaurant called the Yar. Uh, and while he was there, Rasputin got horribly drunk and started creating a complete scandal and harassing the other patrons of the restaurant. And then he started chasing the girls in the gypsy chorus. Um, and then at one point, he jumped up on the table, dropped his trousers, began waving his privates about, and basically telling everyone who would look and listen that this was the altar before which the empress bowed. Uh, huge scandal. The police are, uh, the police come. They drag Rasputin out. Uh, all of Moscow is talking about nothing but this story. But amazingly, nothing happens to Rasputin. The, the Tsar and the Tsaritsa don't get rid of him or send him away to exile. And he maintains his position as a trusted uh, spiritual advisor to the Romanovs. And the story is always brought up for two reasons. Proof of his debauchery complete lack of self-control, and as proof of the hold that Rasputin had over the emperor and the empress. But what was amazing is in these police files were all the police records from that trip to Moscow in March of 1915. And there it is in black and white, the agents who see him off in Petrograd with the name of the train, where he's sitting, when it leaves, who's with him, his arrival in Moscow the next day, and then over the course of the next week, document after document of the numerous agents, because he was usually followed by several agents at once, where he went, the name of the people he met with, the name of the street, the apartment number, specific times of all his movements, when he went to the Yar restaurant, who he sat with at the Yar restaurant, when he left the Yar restaurant, what he did the next day, and you read through all of these police files generated during the trip, not any mention of drunkenness at the restaurant, no mention of a scandal at the Yar, no mention of him being hauled out of the restaurant, no mention of people in Moscow talking about any scandal. And several days later, they report how Rasputin is followed back to the train station and leaves and goes back to Petrograd. And then you keep reading the police files and several months later, a man by the name of Junkovsky, who had made it his life's mission to destroy Rasputin and was then head of the 
police agencies as um, uh, associate to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, writes to his underling at the head of police in Moscow and says, how come I haven't heard anything from you about that terrible incident at the Yar back in March? And his underling knows exactly what is being asked of him. And he then starts creating fake documents uh, that tell the story of a scandal at the Yar. And you can see they, they come up with some sort of a scandal on, on official police letterhead. And then you can tell they decide, yeah, that's maybe not quite enough. So then, then there's another set where the stories get a bit more outlandish, more elaborate. They later add in a political element claiming that not only was he drunk that night, but he was involved in some sort of illegal sale of, of soldiers' underwear that he was going to make a huge profit off of. I mean, and it just gets bigger and bigger. And then they send all of these fake documents up to Junkowski in Petrograd so that he can then present them to Nicholas with a heavy heart and say, it pains me, your majesty, but you must be aware of what this rascal Rasputin has been up to. It's an amazing thing. And again, this is a story that's repeated over and over, but it was only by having access to these documents that I was able to finally say definitively that it just never happened. But I had one problem. It was one of these aha moments reading through all these things. But I had read before uh, the published memoir of a British diplomat by the name of Bruce Lockhart, who was stationed in Moscow during World War I. And in his memoirs, Bruce Lockhart claims that he was at the Yar restaurant that night, and he saw it all with his own eyes. And so I was left with a problem. Do I ignore Lockhart? But I know some readers are going to say, well, Smith's full of it because he didn't read the Lockhart memoirs. So I knew I couldn't do that. So I thought, OK, memoirs, well, memoirs are pretty, pretty easy to fake. But diaries are less easy to fake. So uh, with the wonders of the internet, I started searching around. And sure enough, I found that Lockhart had deposited his diaries in the archive of the Palace of Westminster, where the Houses of Parliament meet in London. And I thought, I've got to go see that. I've got to see that. So I made my way to London. And sure enough, there are all of Lockhart's diaries from his stay in Russia during World War I. And I request the one that uh, deals with the spring of 1915. And they, they bring it out to me. And I'm reading through. And I'm going through March. And he's in Moscow. He's in Moscow. And then, oh, middle of March, he went to Kiev. And he stayed in Kiev for three weeks and doesn't come back to Moscow until April. A week after the Yar scandal. What's more, there's no mention of the Yar scandal. And there's no mention of Rasputin in his diaries. So again, he had simply made up the story because he had heard it and read about it in other accounts. And he liked a good story. And I think he wanted to get the best advance he could from his publisher. So he put it in there. But it never happened. Why I like going to archives. I also am a firm believer that as a biographer, you need to visit those places connected with your subject's life. Um, so for example, I, I went out to Pakrovskaya, which is the home village of Rasputin in Western Siberia um, between the cities of Tumien and Tobolsk. There were not a lot of Western tourists there that day. It was kind of a slow, uh, a slow day. And I'm not always sure what it gives you by going to these places. Um, 
But I think you do soak up something that I hope makes its way into your understanding of the, the person and the place you're writing about. I did notice one thing that, that, that did sort of dawn on me when I was out there in this part of Siberia is Rasputin um, became known for his religious tolerance and specifically toward Muslims. And on the eve of the First and Second Balkan Wars, before World War I, he came out stridently against going to war um, in defense of the Serbs and the other Slavic peoples there. And a lot of Russians on the, on the, on the right of the political spectrum accused him of being an agent of Islam. Um, and he always talked about how, you know, Christianity was but one path to the truth. And it was driving out to this village that uh, it, it dawned on me, we kept passing Muslim villages and seeing mosques. And I had read, of course, in, in history courses about Muslims living in, this, in these areas, but it was like, of course, he, I think, grew up around them. There were Muslim villages and Russian Orthodox villages, and I, I keep thinking that that must have somehow influenced his, his view of religious matters. Uh, I went to the Rasputin Museum in Pakrovskaya, um, uh, established and run by a, a couple named Smirnov, who are Rasputin fanatics of the best sort. Um, they, they did this whole museum without any government uh, funding, without any money, whatever they could scrimp and save. It's located across the street from where Rasputin's house used to stand that was torn down on the orders of, of Yeltsin when he was the governor out there. Toured the museum. Uh, you end up doing things that you never thought you would. Um, my host and hostess, the Smirnovs, insisted that this chair had been in the Rasputin household. And the story goes that uh, any man who sits in it is now guaranteed lifelong virility. <laughs> I'm not going to make any more comments. Uh, in Petersburg, I went uh, to uh, 64 Garochovaya, which is where he had his final apartment. Um, through the archway there. There's nothing to say. It's not like London, you know, where they have the blue pl plaques telling you famous people lived here, but uh, the hair salon there to the left is, is um, named uh, Rasputin. So that's how you know that you've come to the right place. Uh, I waited for someone to leave and they didn't shut the gate, so I made my way in <laughs> up to the third floor to um, apartment 20, which is where uh, Rasputin lived. I've since been put in touch with um, the man who has bought that apartment and is uh, redoing it and like stripping off old paint and trying to get down to, he's hoping like the wallpaper that might have been there uh, when Rasputin lived there. Of course, I had to go to the Yusupov Palace to see the site of the murder. I'm the one on the right. <laughs> this is uh, down in the cellar where they uh, supposedly tried to poison Rasputin and beat him. And, and shoot him and what have you. And this is on the side of the Yusupov Palace. This, it was most likely through this side door in between the cellar and the main floor that Rasputin tried to flee that night in December, probably having already been shot once um, across this courtyard. And what's interesting is the courtyard now um, belongs to a kindergarten. And so when I was there, there were little jungle gyms and swings and slides, and there were all these little kids playing uh, on this spot uh, where it was most likely that Rasputin 
finally fell and, and breathed his last. I don't think the children obviously had any idea where they were playing. I went out to Tsarskaya Selo, the Tsar's palace outside Petersburg. It was um, uh, near there that Rasputin was buried after his body was pulled from the, from the river. Uh, his body lay in the ground not very long until the fall of the Romanovs when the body was dug up uh, and then mysteriously burned and the ashes scattered. Um, and when I, I came up there, there was this woman right there who was sobbing um, and kept saying, Greach, Greach nash, Greach nash, our sin, our sin. And she was sobbing and I finally came up to her and said, are you all right? And she said, we'll, we'll never wash away the sin for killing Father Grigori. And she just kept going on and on and I backed away. I didn't have the heart to tell her that this informal monument is actually probably not on the site where his grave was. It's probably a mistaken location, but in fact, he was probably initially buried out in this field, which I walked around foolishly hoping that I would find something, but of course, I never did. Here's a famous photo of, of Rasputin and uh, everyone except for Nicholas from the royal family. You have seated on the ground, left to right, is Grand Duchess Maria and then Tatiana and one of their governesses, uh, Maria Vishnyakova. In the middle is Anastasia, Anastasia, the, the little Alexei, Rasputin, Alexandra, and then in the back is the Grand Duchess, Olga. So after six years of, of traipsing around Russia and Siberia and other places, you know, what is new here? What is it that I maybe have added to this 154th book uh, on Rasputin? Um, a few things, I hope that I've maybe pushed the ball down the field uh, away from this idea of Rasputin as devil, Rasputin as saint, um, and to humanize him in a way that makes him, I think, much more believable as a flesh and blood human being. Uh, he definitely drank, he womanized, um, he was, I call him a serial groper. Um, just about any female within arm's reach, I think it's fair to say, uh, was apt to be uh, patted down and stroked, caressed in ways that, uh, that no one would like. Um, he had a temper. I think of that we can say for certain. He would rage, oftentimes even directly in front of Nicholas if he felt he wasn't doing the right thing. There was a definite vanity and ambition to him. Uh, there was a definite desire to move up in the world, which is what eventually led him to make contact with the royal family. And I didn't want to in any way whitewash what I thought were these less than savory aspects of his character. Um, but he was never greedy, as sometimes people have written. He had no real interest in money. Money tended to flow through his hands. He was constantly being given bribes. And no sooner did he receive money than he would turn it around and give it to somebody who needed it more than he did. He wasn't interested in, acqu in acquiring property or titles or noble status or anything like that. And he never severed his connections to the peasant class and to Pokrovskaya. He maintained a house in Pokrovskaya. Uh, he was always going back there. One thing that was interesting is this was a man of incredible energy. He was always on the go. And he was always like on a train or on a carriage or cart going somewhere, typically back home to, Pro to Pokrovskaya and back to his family. He was married. Um, and though a, a serial adulterer in some strange sorts of ways uh, did right by his wife Praskovia, he, he made sure there were always uh, women there helping around the house. He always came back to her 
once when some someone asked his wife, you know, how do you put up with, uh, you know, Grigori and his womanizing? She supposedly said, he's got plenty to go around, it's okay. Don't know if that's true or not. I threw it in, I couldn't verify it, but it was too good to leave out. Um, he was also in some ways a good, uh, a good father. He had two daughters and a son. He made sure that his daughters were brought to Petersburg and given the very best possible education. He worried about their dating. Uh, and their boyfriends. He tried to match them up with, with appropriate suitors. When his son Dmitri was drafted into World War I, he was distraught that he would lose his only boy and did what he could to have him assigned away from the fighting uh, on the front lives. And I also came away believing that he, he truly did believe in scripture and the gospels. It's often written that he just used the, the Bible as a, as a weapon to advance himself as a tool. But I really don't believe this is true. Um, and I think there's ample evidence. I'll give you just one example. Um, in the summer of 1914, uh, Rasputin was back home in Pokrovskaya and was walking down the main street when this strange woman approached him. She had a veil over her face and was fully shrouded. And he assumed that she must be a beggar. And she came up to him and he reached into his pocket for his coin purse and was going to give her some money. He was always generous with, with beggars and believed in almsgiving. And with that, she pulled out a dagger about that long and thrust it into his belly, crying, I've killed the Antichrist. Rasputin fell, managed to get up and run down the street. She went after him with the dagger trying to kill him. Miraculously, he survived, he was taken to hospital, but this is all going on while Europe is rushing headlong into the beginning of World War I. And Rasputin is in, in hospital in Siberia in the city of Tumien, and he's horrified that Nicholas is gonna declare war. And he wrote this most amazing uh, and prophetic letter to Nicholas, pleading with him not to listen to the warmongers, to the generals and ministers calling for war, saying that if Russia goes to war, he foresees nothing but unending blood, misery, seas of, of chaos and disaster that will descend upon Russia. Um, and we know he did this because the letter reached Nicholas. He read it. And he even kept it. And after the fall of the Romanovs, he brought it with him when the family was shipped to Siberia. And he found a way to smuggle it out. And it ended up in the hands of Rasputin's son-in-law, who gave it to his wife, Maria, Rasputin's daughter. And she brought it out with her when she escaped Russia, sold it to a collector in Vienna. And it eventually made its way to the uh, Beinecke Rare Book Room at Yale University. And you can go there. And you can hold this letter. Um, I really think that, that there was an, uh, a true element of, of pacifism in him. And he truly believed the whole idea that killing is wrong and thou shalt not kill. And this is, I think, something that has not really been fully explored by previous um, biographers. Another thing I came away with was sort of rethinking this notion of how Rasputin is seen in relationship to Russian society at the time. It's typically viewed that this corrupt, debauched peasant came to Petersburg and sullied uh, elite aristocratic society and brought with him debauchery and immorality. But in fact, the more I read, the more I realized that in fact, it was probably the, more the other way around. It was, the, it was the aristocratic society that corrupted Rasputin more than him corrupting them. Um, and I think that can be clearly said 
of the man who was chiefly responsible for Rasputin's murder, and that is Prince Felix Yusupov. Um, one of the most important sources for our understanding of Rasputin for basically the last hundred years have been Yusupov's memoirs, um, which is basically one lie after another that goes on page after page. There's only one place in his memoirs where Yusupov speaks the truth, and that's when he refers to killing uh, uh, Rasputin as, quote, a cowardly crime, which is what it was. Yusupov was one of the main architects of the view of Rasputin as Satan, um, and the myth that he was the one chiefly responsible for the corruption in Russian society and the downfall of the Romanovs. And what's amazing to me, and this is where I just want to wrap up, is that no one really, as far as I can tell, stopped to think, since when do we take the testimony of a ruthless, cold-blooded killer for the truth? But that's how Yusupov's memoirs have always been read, as sort of an objective window onto Rasputin, onto the murder, and onto that time. But his memoirs are simply an attempt by Yusupov to justify killing an unarmed man in cold blood. And it's really intriguing to read his description of how the murder took place, depicting Rasputin as, as Satan and the leader of the dark forces, thus making himself the Archangel Michael leading the armies of God in the book of Revelation. And that is exactly the framing that Yusupov uses when he describes how basically it was almost impossible to kill Rasputin, but only he, someone of such superhuman power, Prince Yusupov, could do it. I could go on and talk a bit more about that, but I'll leave it there. And if you're interested, you can read about it in the book. <laughs> So I'm happy to uh, take questions uh, if there are. Yes? Are there any surviving Rasputin heirs? There is a, a surviving uh, heir. There's a, the granddaughter of Maria Rasputin. So Maria Rasputin was the elder daughter of Rasputin. And her story's great. And people uh, need to be writing books about her. Mm -hmm. She uh, ended up dying in, in LA in 1977, I think it was. Had a really interesting uh, life story. And her granddaughter is still alive and is in Paris. I actually never did get in touch with her. I had trouble reaching her. And then I read a series of interviews that she had done. And it was clear that she didn't really know anything. And she didn't have any family documentation. She also had been out to Pokrovskaya, to the museum there, and I spoke with the Smirnov couple, and they told me all about her, and they said, she doesn't know a thing, really. So I, so I didn't bother. The rest of the family, um, the other daughter of Rasputin, Rasputin's widow and Rasputin's son and his wife stayed in Russia. They were then repressed by the Soviet government, were basically sent to the camps uh, where they all perished. Yeah. Yes? Are there Rasputin icons circulating anywhere? Uh, yeah, there are. You can find them on the internet. Um, there, are, there is, there is a, uh, I don't want to call it a movement, because that speaks of too many people. But there are voices on the extreme right of the Russian Orthodox Church who want to see Rasputin canonized as a saint. And you can find icons that now depict Rasputin uh, along with Jan Alexei or other members of the royal family. The argument being that um, 
if, if the Romanovs are holy martyrs and he was their chief religious father, well, he must have been holy as well. And they also point to his murder because in ways there are strange parallels between the way the Romanovs met their death and the way Rasputin met his death. In basements, in cellars, in the dark of night, the bodies you know, being ditched in holes and then later burned. So there are these things. And they also, um, which is interesting, sort of an inversion of the Yusup of Tale of the Murder. There's, there's this one woman, total crackpot, but it's interesting on a cultural level, who claims that the Yusup of description of how it was impossible to kill Rasputin is in fact the truth, but it proves not that he was satanic, he was saintly. <laughs> and you often will hear stories that he died, you know, making the sign of the cross and all this total nonsense, but it's, it's, it's out there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Would you think that the representation of Rasputin uh, in the two extremes as the devil or the saint was really a reflection of the political environment of the time and the, the split in Russian society at the time, just before the revolution? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I kind of fake news. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> well, there is the fake news element, and I'll come back to that. But there was also, for me, though, what I would, which I hadn't really thought about before, but after working on it, I came away, he's a perfect figure of, of the Russian Silver Age, that sort of fin de siècle, turn of the century, and the fact that his birth and death dates almost completely frame the, the Russian Silver Age. And one of the characteristics of that period of great... Um, fervent in art, literature, music, culture, was a fascination with the devil. You have a good example is the Russian painter Vrubel, who kept painting the demon, you know, in various depictions. Skryabin, the composer, believed that, that black magic was at work in his music. Um, there was the real sense that the devil really was a true presence and that, that he was actually moving among them. Um, and the, this is repeated throughout literature, music, culture, and that got projected onto Rasputin. And he was sort of um, very much framed as the devil as a result of the larger preoccupation with satanic or what they would call dark forces, tiomnisili, dark forces that they thought were at work. So that's a huge part of it. Um, but back to the fake news, um, when I started getting into more and more of the research, and I, you know, at night I'd sit down and talk to my long-suffering wife about it, who's so sick of Rasputin she could spit. Um, but I kept saying, all these nasty stories are actually turning out not to be true. And she says, well, that's going to be the most boring book. No one's going to want to read a book where you just say, this is really cool, but it didn't happen. But, so, but what I came away with realizing was that there was all this fake news because the people on the right, the defenders of the monarchy, couldn't stand Rasputin. A lot of it for pure class hatred. Why does this dirty peasant get to hang out at court and I'm a count and I'm never admitted? And so they started creating lies about him to try to get rid of him. And then the people on the political left who were the enemies of the throne and wanted to bring down the monarchy realized Rasputin's a godsend. And they make up false stories about Rasputin as a way to sully the image of the monarchy and delegitimize the monarchy in the eyes of society. So he's being attacked from the left and the right uh, with all sorts of fake news. Yeah. Yes. 
Um, you mentioned in your talk and in your book uh, Rasputin's tolerant remarks concerning Muslims. I want to hear. I would like to hear more about this. But in your book, you also mentioned his tolerance toward other groups, Jews, homosexuals, all kinds of dissenters. Um, so I wonder if you could elaborate. On yeah, that was a. How do you explain? That I think, and you know, again, we want to we want to see Rasputin as an evil force, right? Vindictive, violent. Um, but the the more I read, the more I came away with. Um, a sense of his general live and let live kind of attitude. I mean, um, when it comes to the question of Jews, it's interesting. Early on, he was closely linked to right-wing, terribly anti-Semitic members of the church. Germagin is one, and then this crazy, uh, crazy man by the name of Iliador, uh, Sergei Trufanov, who was the most extreme right-wing anti-Semitic um, priest in all of sort of pre-revolutionary Russia. Crazy guy, amazing person. He deserves a book. He ends up in New York as like a um, custodian uh, and a life insurance company on like Madison Avenue. Just utterly bizarre. You can't make this stuff up. Anyway, um, he sides with them but later splits with them around 1911, 1912. And he starts uh, increasingly befriending and moving in Jewish circles, which is another reason he becomes um, a figure for attack by people like Yusupov. Because like in, in his, his memoirs, Yusupov writes there, well, he started hanging out with suspicious people, Jews. Ah, so he must be nefarious, right? Um, he comes to defend Jews um, in terms of uh, sectarian groups who are not part of the main Orthodox Church. Uh, there's a scandal on Mount Athos. Um, and he defends a group of sectarians who are being you know, put down by the main members of the church. Um, he has friends with homosexual priests and doesn't seem to be bothered by their actions, which is quite amazing for the time. Um, and then this question of, of, of the Muslims. And there's not a ton of information, but the best information is in, as I said, in the lead up to the Balkan Wars before World War I. And uh, Rasputin is quoted in the press on numerous occasions saying, why should we spill Russian blood for other Slavic people? We should not be dying for them. Um, this is not our war. And he's attacked then by the right as being an agent of Islam and a defender of the Turkish Empire. And he basically says, are they also not you know, children of God? Are they also not seeking truth? Which is. I think really pretty rare for that for that time, and also given maybe the the background that that he came he came from. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for such a great talk. Thank um, you. A question about um, whether he you know anything about how he viewed Protestant sects. He was not a big fan. This is in one ways. In some ways, he really was a Russian patriot. He was not a big fan of um, of the Protestant West. He was not a big fan of the Catholic West. Um, and there's a few references uh, in the correspondence between uh, Nicholas and Alexander during the war where she is, is telling Nicholas about what Rasputin had told her they should do with, I think it's Baptists. But there was a group who refused to fight for religious reasons. And he says, I think, and I would have to go back and check, but he says, apparently says to Alexandra, 
find don't put guns in their hands, then make them be medics, make them help, you know, on the front lines in a non-military um, capacity. But there isn't a whole lot on them. He does at various times, though, speak of the, um, the Protestant West as being soulless in these typical sort of Russian ways of, you know, they don't really understand God the way we understand God. Um, you know, for them it's more some sort of, you know, bureaucratic kind of official sort of thing. They don't have the spirit world that we do. Um, he makes a pilgrimage to the Holy Land uh, around 1913, and he's there during Easter, during the Easter season. And he goes into at least one Catholic church, and he's appalled by the ceremony and the service, and says, these people, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Yes? Thank you for the talk, by the way, and I enjoyed it a lot. Thank so you. So you said a lot about how Rasputin developed his legendary reputation and all that. But why has it taken historians this long to kind of clear away the myths that kind of float around him? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's something I struggled to figure, to figure out. I think, um, on one hand, you know, during the Soviet period, so pretty much from about 1930 until 1990 or so when the Soviet Union collapsed a year later, you really couldn't go to the Soviet Union and say, I'm writing a biography of Rasputin, show me all the dots. You, you, they just would, it was kind of taboo. So you couldn't get sort of new information out. I think that's one thing. Um, I think another thing is kind of as I, as I mentioned early on, and I don't know, Glennis and Elaine and others can maybe refute me if I'm wrong, but I think within the scholarly academic community, there, there was this kind of sense that he's not a serious um, subject for study. Again, too kind of cartoonish, too sort of outlandish in a kind of way. Also, I think there was a sense that, well, we already know everything there is to know because there are so many books already. And I think that it, this is an instance in which the myth is often a lot more fun than the truth. <laughs> and so I think it's sometimes more fun to want to hold on to these great stories um, and not give up uh, uh, and, and give way to maybe a more accurate understanding of, of what probably uh, happened. I mean, this goes too into, I didn't talk about, but there's, there's a bit of debate uh, about whether or not Rasputin was actually killed by a British agent. And there are two or three books on this. Um, and there's a woman of Russian extraction who lives in Australia who is convinced 100% that it was a British agent who shot Rasputin. Again, as a sign of the evil West destroying good old Russia. And I have all this stuff that suggests that's not probably the case. And, you know, I laid out you know, it's, it's, it just gets weird. I was contacted by some guy who claimed that he manages the Rasputin Wikipedia page. And I'm like, good for you. Um, and he said, well, there's a person in Australia who says your depiction of the British involvement in the murder is all wrong. And so I wrote up all the reasons why I have it this way. And he then sent it to this woman in Australia. And she wrote back with quotes from Pushkin, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that? Um, so there are these people that they don't want to give up on their pet theories and myths and interpretations, so I don't know. That was a long answer, sorry to your question. Anyway, yes? What would you say, in your feeling after all this research and the discovery of, what was his ultimate influence over the Romanovs, or vice versa? Well, I think his actual influence over policy and appointments was minimal. 
uh, and was greatly exaggerated. Um, and a little sidebar to that. Another, I have a chapter in the book called Rasputin, um, the Favorite. Because another thing I started thinking about as I read about him was, and no one had really explored this either, was that he was like a court, a royal favorite. Just like uh, Catherine had Prince Potemkin, Potemkin, or Gregory Orloff, or the kings and queens of France and Spain had court favorites, he was a court favorite. And with that go all sorts of myths and gossip and rumor about the extent of their power. And it's always exaggerated, or typically always exaggerated. And I think his was as well. There were instances where he gave advice that I think had the czar followed it would have been good, like not going to war. Good idea. Um, but then he, he was crazy in his own way. He used to, he would tell you know, Alex, uh, Nicholas how he should organize the, the infant Russian Air Force. Well, he didn't know the first thing about that, but he felt he did. Fortunately, the, you know, he was ignored in those instances. But what happens is, is in the desire of the right to get rid of him, right, and save the monarchy, and the desire of the left to use him to get rid of the monarchy, the stories about his influence get greatly inflated. And exaggerations that, you know, he's the true power behind the throne. Um, there are all these great um, sex stories about, you know, how he's basically sleeping with the empress all the time and having orgies. And Nicholas tries to get into his own bedroom at night, but it's locked from the inside. And, you know, let me in. And Rasputin's having his way with his wife. I mean, it, all these crazy stories, none of them are true, but they're, they're important. They're historical facts because the, the importance and influence of, of Rasputin are the stories about Rasputin that were told during his lifetime that helped delegitimize the throne. That's his biggest importance. But they did try to kill him several times and they failed. Is that not true? Poison him several times. <sighs> But the poison never worked. Yeah, that's... Is, is, that, is that true? There, there were numerous attempts on Rasputin's life. There was the woman who stabbed him. Um, and then in 1915, this is one of the, my favorite stories, was the, um, the minister of the interior tried to have him murdered uh, and, and hired this crazy monk, Iliador, to have some of his followers do it. That, that fell, fell through. Um, what happened in the cellar that night? You know, was there poison in the wine? Was there poison in the cakes? Um, and I won't go down, the, but there's conflicting evidence because some of the people claim that they were supposed to give them poison, but they chickened out, and so they just used ground-up aspirin. Um, what we do know for certain is Rasputin was shot three times. Once in the head. And the final one was right there, and no one survives that. And that's, um, that's definitely what, was, what did him in. And he was already then clearly dead when they tossed him into the river with a bullet straight through the head. So it could have been a single player who actually killed him. Could have bang, been, bang, bang. but probably not, because there were enough police witnesses who came to the palace who saw Purushkevich there and saw uh, Yusupov there. And um, I'll probably just end right here. Uh, uh, granted, um, Dmitry Pavlovich, the cousin of the Tsar, who was also there, there that night, uh, his diaries from a year later are at Harvard, and I went and read those, which no one else had bothered to look at, and he's now in exile uh, in, in Persia after the revolution, and he's writing about what had happened the year before in his diary, and he talks about being involved in the murder, but he does say, I'm just grateful that my hands are not stained with blood. 
meaning he was probably not the triggerman. But whoever the triggerman was, we'll, we'll probably never know. But I have to stop there. I have to pick up my son from school. <laughs> Thank you. Great. Great.